Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Rishi Desai. For all the practicing doctors and doctors to be out there, residency represents an important milestone in their careers. Indeed, it's an opportunity to learn everything they need about the specialty of their choice, train to become experts in their fields, and apply the knowledge that they've acquired in medical school. As such, our next guest plays a very key role in ensuring medical students are well prepared to tackle this challenge. Dr. Peter Katsifrakis is the president and CEO of the National Board of Medical Examiners, an institution known for its role in developing the USMLE and creating assessments and materials used by individuals at various stages of their training. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's my pleasure, Rishi. Thanks for the invitation. So Peter, I'd love to just first start out with learning a little bit more about what got you interested in medicine in the first place. So actually, I first thought that I could be a doctor based upon the suggestion of my best friend's mom. I had a best friend from junior high, high school, college. And because we had such a long friendship, I got to know his parents as well. His dad was a family physician. Because I knew them and liked them, I would sometimes, when I would come home from college, go by and visit them, even if my friend wasn't home. One of these visits, this was in my sophomore year of college, his mom was asking about my plans for the future. You know, Pete, what are you going to be when you, when you finish college? And before I had even answered, she said, you should be a doctor. You know, you're good with people. You're smart. Um, I think you'd be a great doctor. And uh, my friend's dad said, yeah, you know, you're an A student. I was only a B plus student. I think you'd be terrific. So uh, it was, it, it, I mean, really, that was the first time where I thought, you know, I, 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 and I had in the back of my mind thought, would it be possible? Could I, et cetera. But this was the first time I really thought that it might be possible. Clearly that had a profound impact upon my life and my career, but it also taught me how important it is for those of us who are in positions of leadership or further down the road um, to offer our advice and vote of confidence really of those coming behind us, how powerful it can be to, to say to a teen or to a young adult, you know, I think you'd be capable of X. Uh, so it was a, obviously a life-changing conversation for me. Yeah, it sounds like it. And it's interesting how they summed it up with, uh, with, a, yeah. with an A being better than a B plus <laughs> and the fact that you're good with people kind of summarizing the key competencies of a physician. Uh, and, and I guess the other thing is like what you said, like a lot of people don't have that, that friend's mom yeah. advocating for them or making them believe. Yeah. And I think that oftentimes is kind of the critical step uh, for why a lot of people don't go into medicine and why we see so many groups that are, are essentially not represented in the medical field. When I was on the faculty of uh, the medical school, uh, Keck School at uh, USC, there was a doctor there. She was the uh, chief of the division for hematology and oncology. Uh, Sandy Levine was her name. And the population that, that we served was primarily underprivileged, disadvantaged socially. Um, many, uh, many did not speak English. And she said that one of the things that she always did when a parent would come in with children, so the parent may be the person that she was treating, but they would come in with, with children. Um, and she would say to them, to the kids, do you know that when you grow up, you could be a doctor? And I thought, what a, you know, what a powerful intervention just to, to plant the seed, to raise in that child's mind the possibility that they might become a physician. 
probably the most valuable thing that that gets said and gets remembered out of that that visit. Yeah, you know what I mean. Absolutely. When you were there at USC, you uh, won several teaching awards. Uh, I'm curious to get your thoughts on what it takes to be a good teacher and, and maybe even a good teacher, not just to, to students, but to patients as well, like you're saying. The first thing is you have to like teaching. Uh, you have to like what you're doing. And I think you have to be aware of how things have changed. And I say that because the expectations of teachers and what is recognized as good teaching is different today than earlier in my career and certainly than when I was a student. Faculty are expected to be much more engaged and engaging than was true in the past. And there's, you know, obviously there's a whole body of literature about different teaching techniques, different pedagogy that can inform medical education and other education. Liking what you're doing is key. I also think being able to empathize, to put yourself in the shoes of your learner, at least to the extent that you understand what their needs are, because you're not going to be effective, or at least as effective, if you can't recognize where your learner is starting and what their needs are and interests are, and tailor your instruction, tailor your teaching to best meet those needs. You know, whenever I, I think of teaching for myself and my style, I often think of the folks that have shaped it. Who are some of the teachers that have shaped or influenced your teaching style? Mm. I mentioned Sandy Levine. She would be one that I would look to. She was spectacular. I had a botany teacher as an undergraduate, uh, Lou Feldman. I think he's still teaching at UC Berkeley. He was very early in his career when uh, he was my professor, um, but he was just so enthusiastic and so excited to be teaching. It was infectious. I had no particular interest in plants, um, but I just absolutely loved that course because of him. And I I've, actually, I find that maybe to my detriment as a student, I am very influenced by the professor, by the teacher. That's maybe made me a little bit more sensitive to the impact of the individual who's standing in front of the group or ideally working alongside the group, helping them, teaching them. I think like you, I'm also very influenced by, by people that I think are incredibly uh, effective teachers. And, and sometimes my interests shift uh, to those interests, even though, you know, it's probably mostly because of the person rather than the material. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, with regard to influence, I mean, it makes me realize, you know, maybe you have to state the obvious NBME, the group you lead has incredible influence, right? Like a lot of students out there that are listening right now, um, maybe thinking about kind of any, any tidbits you might drop or knowledge you might drop, you know, along the way. But to back up a bit, you know, the, the mission of NBME is to protect the health of the public through say the art assessment and health professionals. And I don't think a lot of people recognize that or realize that. So do you mind just explaining how you and your team work to achieve that goal of kind of protecting the health of the public? Let me maybe address that in two different ways. One of the ways that we address this, so this is maybe a high level answer and then I'll dig a little bit more deep. One of the ways is by recognizing how important assessment is in the process of medical education and training. We know that it drives people's behavior. There are all kinds of aphorisms about what's measured matters. To that extent, we fully appreciate the impact that the work we do has on individual learners and ultimately on healthcare practitioners. So we use assessment as a tool to drive excellence. So now digging in a little bit more deeply, the way we do our work is really a very collaborative process. So we very much depend upon 
are subject matter experts who come from medical schools across the country and even involve international experts to develop the assessments, um, not just to write the questions, but also to review the questions, to assess how they perform once they're administered in examinations, to pull questions out if they don't perform well, to tweak them or edit them, to look at the entirety of an examination and make a judgment about how appropriate it would be given the purpose of say a step one or a step three examination. We very much depend upon those individuals. But then looking at the staff, we have editors and IT experts and statisticians and psychometricians and all manner of individuals that devote their life's work to creating the best assessments that we can. That all happens behind the scenes for most people. I don't know why, but I think about my sister. She's a, she's a high school teacher. She's teaching computer science to high school students. And this past year has been particularly tough for her because she doesn't have the supports that teachers have normally when they're in the building. So teaching remotely, as have so many teachers for the past year, she has struggled with how to achieve the same outcomes with much more limited resources. At NBME, we've been so fortunate over the course of the past year because well, we've not been able to work together in the same building that we have historically. Um, we have systems in place that allow the individuals who have provided the support to our volunteers prior to the pandemic uh, to continue to provide that support, albeit under the different circumstances that we've faced recently. You know, with, with regard to preparing the best physicians, one choice you made in your own life, which, which is an interesting one, is to pursue an MBA. I'm curious to get your thoughts on advice you might give to students in the audience that may be thinking about whether another degree, maybe an MBA, maybe an MPH, whatever it may be, uh, is worthwhile, how you made your choice to do that, and maybe even how it's shaped your career and your tenure as the president and CEO of the NBME. Rishi, it would be hard for me to give others advice about the wisdom of pursuing an additional degree without knowing a lot more about them. So let me not try to do that, except to say that I can share my experience personally I found it to be very rewarding. I enjoyed the process, although it, because I did it while I was also fully employed, it had a, a somewhat adverse impact on my social life. I kind of didn't see much of family or friends during that time, but I really enjoyed the experience of, of learning about the business world. And I think what it did was that it gave me a different set of tools, a different lens, a look into what had previously been a black box for me. And in my current role, that has been important in that it has enabled me to ask challenging questions of our organization, um, push us to achieve efficiencies that we might not have otherwise, justify the work that we're doing by bringing the perspective of the public that we serve and the examinees that we serve to require that our staff be accountable for achieving the mission that we've set out to achieve and do so in the most efficient, effective manner. You know, over the last 18 months, two years now, COVID has wrecked havoc on our healthcare system. And you sit in a very interesting point in our healthcare system, part of the pipeline helping to build healthcare capacity. I'm curious what you've noticed or what sort of narratives have been understated and, and people should take a little bit more note of uh, with regards to things that we can do to help build and boost our healthcare system to help strengthen it against the next pandemic. Yeah, it certainly has been... Uh... I think eye-opening for all of us. 
let me point to some of the issues that have come up. First off is the fragility of our healthcare system and the disparities and the gaps that have been revealed, uh, both in terms of access to resources, um, as well as the outcomes. COVID has really brought to the fore issues that most people may have been aware of to some degree or another, but at a national level, we have a better awareness than we would have pre-pandemic. I also think that the pandemic has revealed the heroism of physicians and other healthcare practitioners, just how valuable the services that these individuals and these teams provide, how valuable they are, and also the human limits that the pandemic has pushed people to. It's also shown, at least in this country, our focus on uh, the health of the individual, sometimes to the detriment of our focus on public health and how that's probably an area that needs some rebalancing. Additionally, at the national level, we've seen how the public and our patients are challenged in determining what's a credible voice. Who can I turn to, to understand what's the best course of action for me and my family? And I guess the last thing I think that the pandemic has shown us is the unending resilience and humanism and altruism of healthcare practitioners and students, um, students on the threshold of a career, uh, still willing to serve in whatever capacity that they can, and the resilience of our medical educators, the faculty who literally over the course of days were challenged to uh, completely overhaul the way that they teach and to a large degree have been incredibly successful in doing that. You know, and a lot of changes have also happened in the last year, year and a half uh, with regards to the USMLE as well. They've made both students and, and faculty kind of take note and think hard about how to consider step one, step two, et cetera. One of the things that I wanted to just pick your brain about was the, the step one switching to a pass or fail format. Why do you feel like those changes were necessary and maybe even necessary now? Yeah. And I think necessary now is probably the key because you know, what we've seen, and this is not news to anybody, what we've seen is that the use of the step one score in the process of uh, residency selection was far outweighed to the value that I think it should have brought to that process. So having an understanding of how well somebody has mastered the content of step one, I would argue is a, is a good data point, but it should not be used in the way that we've seen it used historically. So we felt that the better course of action would be to change scoring from the numeric score that we've, we've offered in the past to a pass fail, uh, so as to reduce the um, overweighting that we had seen in the residency selection process so that we can uh, have a process that is more effective for everybody involved. You're citing the changes that we've made uh, this past year, but actually the decision to switch to pass-fail scoring preceded 2021 by a couple of years and came out of a conference that we convened, we NBME, uh, with four of our sister organizations just to look at the issue of scoring in the USMLE program. And, um, as a consequence of that conference, that really solidified our resolve to make this change.
you know, I, I imagine that different stakeholders would, would view this differently. Do you mind just sharing some of the responses you've heard from folks when they heard about this move to pass or fail and whether you feel like now there's the potential for overweighting with step two? Uh, and if so, like, what do we do about that? Let me take your second question first um, with regard to the potential for overweighting of step two CK. It'll be interesting to see. So we certainly recognize that is a risk. And we also think that thinking and hopefully practice have evolved in part as a consequence of the insights that have arisen out of the decision that we've, we've taken and the conversation that this has engendered. So while it certainly seems like that may be a possibility, it's also quite possible that our system will look at step 2CK more thoughtfully and differently than might have been true in the past. Um, you also know, I'm, I'm sure, of the work of the Coalition for Physician Accountability's undergraduate to graduate medical education review committee that looked at this whole issue of the transition. That has also fed the conversation and the insight that people will bring to this question. You've asked about what have different stakeholder groups said. I would limit it and say, if I talk about just the responses from students, that that is probably a fairly representative description of what we've heard from various different stakeholders. So on the one hand, we've heard from students who say, thank goodness, I'm so glad this change has come about. Uh, the pressure that step one score and performance on step one had exerted that I had felt previously was so extreme uh, that I'm glad that I won't have to face this in the future. And we hear from students who say, you've completely removed my ability to differentiate myself in the process of applying to residency, that I now look not so dissimilar to everybody else applying to my field. And in fact, we know that we students know that, that programs don't look at grades and don't look at anything other than USMLE scores. That's a mischaracterization, but that is one of the things that we've heard. So you, you've removed this tool. Um, I've also heard that from both sides that step one was previously distorting medical school curricula and that now as a student I can focus my attention on aspects that wouldn't have been tested on step one but that will be important to my future as a physician um, and also heard from others who would say you've removed the motivation for me to really sit down and, and struggle and solidify my mastery of the content that's covered on step one. So I'm no longer driven to do the same degree of preparation that I might have otherwise. So really just very, even amongst just the student population, very different perspectives on this question. And in addition to wearing your hat, obviously as the leader of NBME or the part of the leadership team, uh, you're also a licensed physician in family medicine. And so thinking about it from that lens, that perspective, I'm curious to get your thoughts on how you think these changes will affect folks that are going to eventually end up uh, in clinical practice. I don't think that these changes will materially affect the practitioners uh, who end up in clinical practice. The switch to pass-fail may have some negative characteristics, but ultimately we made the change because we thought that the positive aspects would far outweigh those. And I think that's true individuals will still demonstrate the required degree of mastery and still go on to be effective clinicians. Uh, similarly, with the elimination of step two CS, some of the changes that we are anticipating 
that we've made already and that we are anticipating in assessing clinical skills will actually improve our ability to assess clinical skills beyond what would have been true historically. Um, so the impact upon practitioners will be negligible. I also know that the USMLE program exists within the larger context of our assessment and training and education system. We are one part of a very sound medical education system that prepares, I would argue, some of the best physicians in the world. So one final question I'd like to then end on is, is a conversation that you might have with, let's say, yourself at the age of 20. You know, what, what advice would you have given that 20-year-old Peter as he's kind of embarking on his medical journey or his, his career about ways to think about professionalism and uh, what he wants to get out of life? Rishi, I think one of the things I would say is that a career in medicine is still one of the best careers that I could be pursuing. I would reinforce that decision. I would say that there will be times where the challenges may seem overwhelming, insurmountable, and that uh, there are things that will bedevil me at age 25 that will continue to challenge and be problematic for the rest of my career. And in the face of that, it's still a wonderful career. I wish that I would maintain focus on what it was that drew me into this profession, why I thought that a career in medicine would be good, and to continue to uphold the ideals of our profession, uh, particularly in light of some of the changes to the healthcare system, some of the imposition of business-oriented changes that might drive a better bottom line, but at the expense of humans and the patients we seek to serve, to continue to advocate for the profession, and to recognize that we're not doing that uh, in isolation by ourselves, that physicians can depend upon each other, but also can depend upon our other health professional colleagues to collaborate. Together, we work to provide the best care for our patients. Together, we also had the opportunity to uh, work to improve the systems of care uh, that our nation employs. So that again, ultimately, we're providing the best care for our patients that we can. That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. I'm delighted that you're able to join us today, Peter, and uh, for sharing kind of both uh, your personal take as well as your take on where NBME is headed to accomplish their mission. Thank you. Thank you, Rishi. I hope it's been uh, helpful and will prove useful for your audience. I appreciate the invitation and the chance to talk about uh, something that's so important to me. Absolutely. I'm Rishi Desai. Thank you for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.